An impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump is underway in the U.S. House of Representatives. The president is alleged to have pressured Ukrainian leaders to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter over the latter's business dealings in Ukraine. Trump is also alleged to have urged Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate possible Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, despite the fact that there is no evidence of such interference having taken place. A key issue is whether President Trump threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine if the requested investigations did not materialize. Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky have both denied that military aid was conditioned on a quid pro quo, although Trump has admitted to discussing the Bidens during a phone call with Zelensky. The impeachment inquiry became public this past week with two U.S. diplomats testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. This week on Dialogue Minnesota... Hamlin University political science professor and University of Minnesota visiting professor of law David Schultz joins us by phone to discuss the current impeachment inquiry and previous impeachment proceedings against U.S. presidents. Professor Schultz, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me again. The U.S. House of Representatives recently voted to authorize an impeachment inquiry against President Trump. What is the difference between an inquiry and an actual impeachment? going on here. If we're looking at what the House did in terms of its vote, it legally doesn't change anything. There's nothing in the Constitution that requires the House of Representatives to actually have to do a vote to say we are formally doing an impeachment inquiry. The Constitution gives Congress, including the House of Representatives, broad leeway to do investigations and an oversight. So in some sense, again, the vote didn't really mean anything from a legal perspective, but from a political perspective, it meant a lot in the sense that the focus now of the committee hearings and oversight is going to be specifically directed to the question of, are there any grounds to believe that the President of the United States has done something deserving of impeachment? So it may change the focus. That's one thing. The other thing is think about from a political significance here. Donald Trump now becomes only the fourth president in American history to be subjected to impeachment inquiry or proceeding. And then also, one of the criticisms that Donald Trump and the Republicans had against what the House was doing was saying that it's not transparent and we're not going to cooperate with you because it's not an impeachment inquiry. There's that old expression that says, don't ask for something because you might get it. Now, there is a formal process, there is a transparency, it removes some of the objections that the Trump administration had for not cooperating. What is the definition of impeachment, and what do we need to know about the Founding Fathers' intent? Why did they see a need to put impeachment into the Constitution? So we need to think of impeachment as being referred to as in four places in the U.S. Constitution. Impeachment is when the House of Representatives, by a majority vote, finds that there is something that the President of the United States has done wrong and deserves to be removed from office. If a majority of the House of Representatives votes on an article of impeachment, then there's a trial in the Senate. And if two-thirds of the Senate agree to uphold at least one of the articles of impeachment, then the President of the United States is immediately removed from office. So that's the process. 
House impeaches by majority vote, Senate has to uphold those articles of impeachment or find guilty with a two-thirds vote. What are the grounds for impeachment? The Constitution says that individuals such as the President of the United States, officers of the United States, may be impeached for treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Now, the Constitution's pretty clear on treason. That's defined in the Constitution. Treason is either giving aid and comfort to the enemy or waging war against the United States. That's pretty clear. Okay. Bribery, most people think that's pretty clear, where you pay somebody to do something for your own personal benefit or you accept money from somebody else to do something for personal benefit when you're an office holder. The question becomes, what is a high crime and misdemeanor? And that gets us back to what the framers were trying to do when they put impeachment in the Constitution. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors goes back to 1376 in British history. And high crimes and misdemeanors, crimes for them, referred to a series of different things. It referred to malfeasance, nonfeasance, non-performance of work. And when the British were using impeachment, they were using this against the king's ministers because they couldn't impeach a king, they couldn't remove a king, but they would use this against the king's ministers as a way of preventing abuses of power. And so the United States, or our constitutional framers, brought that concept of impeachment to the United States, to the Constitution, for the same idea, to try to use a process where if the House and the Senate agreed that a, in this case, a president was misusing his office for personal gain, abuse of power, again, malfeasance, nonfeasance, they would be entitled to say that that person should no longer be in office. During the impeachment inquiry, does the House have to focus specifically on the controversial call that President Trump made to Ukraine's president, or could the inquiry expand into Trump's businesses and tax returns, for instance? Well, there's no question that the impeachment inquiry could open up and go into lots of different things. And prior to the vote to have a formal impeachment inquiry, we had six different committees in the House of Representatives looking at a variety of different things, of which the most let's say, notable one, was the phone call with the Ukrainian president. But it could very well be that they decide that there are other possible grounds for impeachment. There could be, for example, let us say, misuse of office or abuse of authority. Maybe they'll find, I mean, we don't know, of course, maybe they'll find some other ground related to obstruction of justice, which is part of why they're asking for information from the Justice Department regarding testimony that was critical to the Mueller report. So the inquiry is still a very broad, sweeping inquiry, looking to see if, in fact, there are any reasons to think that the president has committed some acts that would be worthy of impeaching. We're talking with David Schultz. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Hamlin University. He is also a visiting professor in the University of Minnesota Law School. The vote for the inquiry mainly fell along party lines, with only two Democrats, including Minnesota Representative Colin Peterson, joining all House Republicans in voting against the inquiry. Is it surprising to you that no Republicans broke rank from the party on this vote? I'm not surprised, and for two reasons. One... If we look 
back on the previous three impeachments, they started off also as partisan in terms of the opposing party driving the initial inquiry. And I know lots of people say, aha, that proves that impeachment is just partisan. Not necessarily. What it means is that the opposition party is doing what it's supposed to do, check the president of the United States. So that's first, not a surprise. Second, we are in such a hyper-partisan era right now where very few representatives break from the party line. It also doesn't surprise me. And then finally, we know that within the Republican Party, Donald Trump enjoys a support of nearly 90% from people who identify as Republicans. And it would be very, very difficult with those kind of numbers for a House member who's a Republican to break and not support Donald Trump in terms of an impeachment inquiry or an impeachment vote. Do we have a good feel for why Representative Peterson voted against the inquiry? Yeah, we do. I think for a couple of reasons. One is that it is based upon the 2016 presidential election in Minnesota. It was the most solidly Republican pro-Trump congressional district in the state of Minnesota. And I think had he voted in favor of the inquiry, that would have hurt him politically. And it would have gone against what? Where his constituents are. And I say this because if, in fact, representatives are supposed to, at least in part, vote what their constituents believe, and his constituents are against impeachment and are pro-Trump, in some sense he's voting with his constituents, but also he's facing a very, very tough re-election in 2020. He's facing former Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fischbach, and I think he was also concerned that were he to have voted in favor of the inquiry, this would hurt him politically going into the 2020 election cycle. Looking at the other House members from our state, are any of their seats in jeopardy because of the way they voted? I don't believe so at this point, with the exception of Colin Peterson. Otherwise, I think all the representatives voted in the way where I think their districts are. I know some people are speculating and thinking that perhaps maybe somebody such as Angie Craig, representing the 2nd Congressional District, might be vulnerable, um, a district that she had just won for the first time. But my suspicion is, without having firm data, is that she's probably pretty close to where her district is in terms of their views on Donald Trump. And so, for the most part, I don't think any of the other representatives really voted against where I think their constituents are. Is there a chance in your estimation that Representative Peterson could be challenged by a more left-leaning DFL candidate in the primary? It is, of course, always possible that Peterson might face a challenge from the left of his party, but this is a very conservative congressional district. It would be very hard for a more left-winging, in fact, left-leaning at all representative um, to get elected in that district. Peterson, as a centrist kind of conservative Democrat, is probably pretty close to where the district is. It's also a district that many people speculate that were he not running for re-election, it would probably easily fall into Republican hands. And so while there's a chance, of course, in the next few months that he might face a challenge from the other side, from the Democrats, I think it's unlikely. The other reason why I think it's unlikely, he's also the chair of the House Agricultural Committee. 
He is, I think, 37th in seniority in the House of Representatives. He's an exceedingly powerful representative, maybe the most powerful representative in Minnesota, and he is very well liked among Democrats in the 7th Congressional District. It would take a lot to mount a serious challenge, especially with what us being literally 12 months away from the election cycle, even less. We would be, what, probably just a matter of months away from the caucuses and then eventually from the primaries. He's probably safe at this point with the Democrats. If the House moves ahead with impeachment, at this point it appears that we can assume the Senate will not vote to convict. What then is the point of the House impeachment? Is it worth the political risks to the Democrats just to see their efforts ultimately fail in the Senate? Sort of two answers to this question here. One of them may be at the end of the day that the Democrats are saying that on matter of principle, they want to go forth with impeachment because they think the President of the United States has done something so seriously wrong. He deserves to be ousted from office. That's clearly a possibility. But second, if we should be thinking about timing at this point, is that even though the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at one point was telling Republicans, anticipate an impeachment trial in the Senate in November, that's very unlikely. In fact, if we look at past impeachment inquiries or processes in the House, they take several months. So under a scenario that I see is that the House is going to need a few months to gather information. The Trump administration may challenge some of those things in court. I could very well see a possible impeachment vote taking place somewhere around March, April, or May of 2020. And that date is significant because at that point, we're in the middle of the primary caucus season. It would then force the Republicans to hold a trial in the Senate sometime during the summer or perhaps during the fall election, and that would be a significant blow, perhaps, to the Republicans. Additionally, there are 35 Senate seats up in 2020, of which 23 are held by Republicans. There may be a tactical advantage for Democrats who want to take back the Senate by doing the impeachment vote when they do and then forcing a trial. And then finally, this may be a way of motivating Democrats to show up to vote we in general know that Democrats are not as good at showing up to vote as Republicans are, and maybe having an impeachment trial in the Senate at the point when we're going into a general election might be a way of motivating Democrats to show up and vote. Are there any alternatives to impeachment? For example, could Congress vote to censure the president? They could do a vote for censure, just not clear exactly what that would accomplish. You know, given the fact that the president and the House are clearly at odds with one another, I just don't see the value that it would get for the House politically, necessarily, or legally, or from the point of view of checks and balances. And so I would suggest at this point, while it's a possible option, it may not accomplish, again, legally or politically, what the Democrats would like to have come out of this. Republicans have complained that the process has been unfair and lacks transparency. Are Democrats proceeding in a way that's different from past impeachment proceedings? For example, has this process so far been conducted any differently than Bill Clinton's impeachment? In many ways, this is very similar to the Bill Clinton one, with one notable exception. Prior to Bill Clinton's impeachment, we had an extended process where there was a special prosecutor, Kenneth Starr, 
who was looking into what initially was supposed to be the um, financial misdealings of the Clintons back when Bill Clinton was governor. And most of that was done outside of um, any kind of public scrutiny. And then once the House received it, it wasn't until fairly late in the process that it started to have the public hearings. And I mention that because typical of oftentimes many investigations, criminal investigations, although this is not a criminal inquiry, by the way, impeachments are not, but for a lot of criminal inquiries, a lot of times the police departments do things without transparency until they reach a point when, in fact, they have enough information to go public. And so if I can draw that parallel here, I think we're both seeing about the same level of transparency that we saw with Clinton and at the same time parallel to what we see oftentimes in many investigations. We're talking with David Schultz. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Hamlin University. He is also a visiting professor in the University of Minnesota Law School. What now are the next steps in the process? For example, how long does the inquiry proceed, and when would impeachment become official? Okay, so we're looking at a couple of possibilities here. Again, looking at both Clinton and, let's say, the Nixon impeachment process during the 1970s, I could see this taking several months. I mean, we're going to soon the Thanksgiving and then eventually into, so let's say, a holiday recess, The government still has some other work it has to do besides impeachment. Um, It still has to pass bills and do other stuff. So right now we're going to see the impeachment inquiry take several months gathering information. Mostly, I think at this point, the reason why it's going more public is to now educate the American public about the charges and the issues. And then we're eventually going to perhaps see a vote if it happens. I think somewhere March or April next year. It may even be a little bit later because it's going to take several months to put together the charges, to gather the evidence, information, to really educate the American public perhaps about why the president should be impeached. Let's talk about some of the other presidential impeachments in U.S. history. Who was the first president to face impeachment? The first president to face impeachment was Andrew Johnson back in 1868. He became president of the United States after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding this. He was impeached, but eventually acquitted in the Senate by one vote. And some people argue that it was simply a policy disagreement between the Republicans who were trying to move Reconstruction and civil rights issues for the freed slaves versus Andrew Johnson, who is obstructing that and preventing that from occurring. That's sort of one interpretation. Other interpretations are it was just a political vendetta. Others were that he had formally violated the law. All kinds of interpretations in terms of exactly what was driving that one. But at the end of the day, he was acquitted by one vote. And I think history will attest the fact that he really did, at the end of the day, to implement the laws of Reconstruction that the Republicans wanted. In the case of Nixon in 1974, we only had a vote by the House Judiciary Committee. We never did get to a full vote before the House of Representatives, before Nixon resigned. The charges for him were obstruction of justice in terms of impeding the investigation 
into the Watergate break-in. And that's really the most important one here. It's obstruction of justice and basically obstruction of the will of Congress in terms of doing its work. The House Judiciary Committee had voted on three articles of impeachment, but before it got to the full floor, Republican Senator Barry Goldwater went to the White House and said, we don't think there's enough votes to keep you in office. And basically when the president was informed that his own party was going to break with him, that's when he stepped down. And then in the case of Clinton, it arose from Bill Clinton lying under oath regarding a sexual relationship he had had with one of his interns, Monica Lewinsky, and then he tried to cover up that relationship. And the House basically charged him with obstruction of justice and perjury or lying under oath. That trial then took place, and nearly along straight partisan line votes, he was acquitted of those charges in 1998. When a president has faced impeachment, did the votes in the House and Senate tend to fall along party lines? You said that was clearly the case in President Clinton's impeachment. Also, did the impeachment process polarize the country? The Clinton impeachment process was taking place at a time when the United States was becoming more polarized, and that was happening from the 1970s and more importantly from the 1980s on. And so it was a continuation of a series of events, election of Ronald Reagan, let us say, to the election of of Bill Clinton, to the Robert Bork hearings for the Supreme Court in the 1980s, that all were polarizing the country. And the impeachment of Clinton both was the result of polarization and also producing even more of that dichotomy or break between the two parties. Ultimately, is impeachment more about upholding the law and the Constitution or about politics? You know, it's a good question here because it perhaps be a little bit about both. You know, if we think about impeachment, they are partly constitutional, judicial kind of like matters, they're partly political judgment issues, and so they bear a little bit of characteristics of both at the end of the day in terms of, of really what an impeachment decision is about. You know, the fact that we've never impeached and convicted any previous president also speaks to the enormously high bar surrounding the idea of saying that a president should be removed from office by means beyond elections. And I think that's going to be the challenge moving forward with an inquiry for Donald Trump, because given the timing, impeachment is colliding with the 2020 election. And so we're going to have questions about the Constitution, questions about politics, questions perhaps about partisan motivation that are all coming together here, along with the polarization that we talked about that raise, I think, difficult questions about what's going to happen in the next few months. Does the impeachment process benefit one party for the next election? What are the potential risks and rewards that Democrats and Republican strategists are thinking about for 2020? Well, clearly for the Democrats, the fear is that, especially if there was a trial and acquittal, how there would be a backlash from Republicans that would guarantee his election. Even just an impeachment vote, I think some are fearing, is 
strengthening his base to turn out to vote for him. For the Democrats, I think they're hoping that it motivates their base, especially if a vote were to occur next year. And I think both parties are looking to see how does the decision about impeachment affect those critical swing voters in a handful of states across the United States, including places like Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, um, Iowa, to what extent does it impact their decisions regarding how to vote and how will that play out for the 2020 election? David Schultz is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Hamlin University. He is also a visiting professor in the University of Minnesota Law School. His blog is schultztake.blogspot.com. Professor Schultz, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. It's always my pleasure. Thank you very much. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math The so-called STEM careers are in high demand. Yet, women and people of color remain greatly underrepresented in these careers. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at a partnership between the University of Minnesota and a middle school to support students from groups typically underrepresented in STEM as they participate in a science fair. Be sure to visit us online at DialogueMinnesota.com and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.